Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. You're in and you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags. And get ready. You're going to Vegas. With someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. With us is a Las Vegas legend, comedian Tom Dreesen. has done stand-up for 45 years or so. He's been on television countless numbers of times. A regular on The Tonight Show, and you might know him best as the opening act for the great Frank Sinatra for 13 years, and is heavily involved in philanthropy, including working with the USO. Dude, I'm an ex-GI. I spent four years in the military, and I've performed in Iraq, and I, I, I've been doing military. I, this is my 48th year in show business, by the way. So my whole career, whenever I get a chance to entertain our troops, I do. Because I remember what it was like when I was in the service, and if some guy would come and play harmonica, we were thrilled, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like to do that. Well, yeah, that was a thing. You know, everybody thinks of Bob Hope, but I imagine when you're in the service like that, like you say, just a little bit of that, you know, coming from home just feels so good and the chance to laugh in a place that's not a lot of fun. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and uh, you know, there's still a lot of guys out there that do that, Gary Sinise being one. Gary Sinise has now probably done more shows for our troops than Bob Hope did. Because Bob Hope would do, you know, a few a year around Christmas time. Gary does 40 to 50 uh, shows a year with the Gary Sinise Lieutenant Dan Band. <clears throat> and and, uh, and the, the troops just love him, you know. Yeah, great guy, too. I've, I've met him on a few, a few occasions. He and Joe Montaigne, really close friends, and they do a lot with the military. It's, a, it's yeah. really great. They're my buddies, too. We're all Chicago guys, you know, so we... We get together every chance we get. Joe Montaigne has a place called Taste Chicago over in Burbank where we go over there and he has the Chicago beef, Chicago hot dogs, Chicago pizza. And so sometimes Dennis Franz and, and uh, Gary Sinise, myself, and uh, William Peterson, uh, you know, just Chicago guys. Dennis Farina used to do it, and Dennis passed away. You know, but whenever we can get a chance, we get together and hang out. So I imagine you must be a Cubs fan then, along with the rest of them, right? You had uh, a great year a couple of years ago, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've, I've been a Cub fan all my life, and I was raised on the South Side. They were all White Sox fans when I was growing up. And, you know, I didn't realize I was five years old listening to the Cub games on the radio with my dad. And, <clears throat> you know, uh, and the, and. So by the time I was eight years old, I realized I was in enemy territory, you know. By the yeah. time I was nine years old, I could take a punch, you know. <laughs> White well, Sox fans hated Cub fans, you know. Oh, yeah, tough time. You know, and especially with the White Sox and won a couple of World Series. I know, you know, I'm a guy I used to announce years and years and years ago with Pat Hughes when we were in college together. And, yeah, he was telling me you just can't imagine uh, what that meant to that city because these people, a lot of them thought they were never going to uh, see a championship in their entire lifetime. Well, I know 108 years before the Cubs won a World Series, so it was it was a magnificent moment in 2016. I mean, the world, uh, you know, all of us thought. I'll tell you what my biggest fear was, Steve. <clears throat> I always thought that the Cub fans there were least suicides among Cub fans than any other baseball fandom because every year each Cub fan would say, "Well, this might be the year that they win the World Series." So 
when the Cubs finally did win the World Series, I was afraid that the next day 20,000 people would be jumping off the top of the Tribune Tower. <laughs> yeah, they'd be just <laughs> waiting. <they> look for. <laughs> well, now I got it, you know. <laughs> well, you know, you know you, again, we, we know you uh, from all those Tonight Show appearances and so forth. You know, the working for Frank Sinatra, I got to ask you, and I know you, you, you've done an act where you kind of talk about that. I guess what a thrill of a lifetime, right, to be around greatness like that. Yeah, for me, you know, I, I do a 90-minute show now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. So it's a 90-minute show of, of stand-up comedy. I, of course, I'm a stand-up comedian. I do a lot of stand-up comedy, but I segue over to a bar, and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which was Frank's drink of choice. And I tell a real funny story at the bar, and all the lights go out in the theater when the people are laughing. And on the screen, Frank comes on singing. You know, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. That saloon song, one yeah. for my baby. And when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road. The spotlight hits me, and now I'm in a bar, and I've come home. And the audience is in a bar with me. And I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes, in a bar on the south side of Chicago, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Sinatra on the jukebox on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. And, and while I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the story as well as video of Frank and I together. And, and, uh, in, and in it are the stories of what it was like being around this man for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. This, this great Frank Sinatra, you know, uh, the different sides of him, being alone with him in, in a car at 3 o'clock in the morning, riding around in the desert, just him and I, <clears throat> staying at his home, you know, or being in this private jet, flying from one gig to another, you know, uh, or being on stage, you know, uh, with, this, with this great artist. I, if I, <clears throat> you know, I, I always say this, in my lifetime, I've always liked live performers. When I was growing up, if you said to me, played a word association game with me, if you said love, I'd say mom. If you said baseball, I'd say Chicago Cubs. If you said show business, I said Frank Sinatra. Yeah. You know, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, they were live entertainers. And, and so for me, too, I toured with Sammy Davis for three years. I, I did the Dean Martin shows and did some private gigs with uh, Dean Martin and also with Frank Sinatra for 14 years. If you, uh, if, I never cared if CBS, ABC, NBC, if they liked me, if these men thought I was good enough to be on the same stage with them, then that's all that mattered to me. You can close the lid on my coffin now, uh, yeah. you know, even though I'm out there working all the time. But that meant more to me than anything else, being around those entertainers, and they thought I was good enough to be on the same stage with them, that's all the approval I needed. Well, and that is quite the compliment. I mean, they just simply didn't work with people they didn't respect. And, you know, to have the respect of those guys, which people that weren't around in the, in the 60s and 50s, they don't realize, I mean, that was the biggest act in show business at the time. Well, Frank Sinatra was the biggest act in show business to the end. You yeah. know, he sold out in Moscow at age 78. He sold out in Argentina. He sold out in Japan. You know, name me an artist that was a star for 60 years. For 60 years. It's, it's, he, it, he recorded, the only male artist ever to record in seven decades. 
in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And in the 90s, the largest album of all time was a duets album of his career. You know, yeah. he won the Academy Award. You forget what a brilliant actor he was. That he, he, this is a man who never took an acting lesson. One time I was sitting with Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Robert Wagner, and Frank Sinatra, and they were talking about acting. And I was just curious, and I said to Frank, did you ever study acting? Because I want to know who he studied with. Gregory Peck grabbed my arm and said acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a, a diamond in the rough that you didn't fool with. This is a man <clears throat> who never took an acting lesson and won the Academy Award. It's incredible. And he danced with Gene Kelly, for God's sake. You know. When you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? You know, he would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him, and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that pain in the 20,000-seat arena. Well, the guy in the furthest row could feel that, that what Frank Sinatra was singing about, because no one ever, ever interpreted lyrics the way he did. You know, he was truly one of a kind, you know. Yeah. And arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Well, and that's why people, you know, you can't see him, unfortunately, he's gone. But uh, if you get a chance, you want to see an evening of laughter, memories of Sinatra from a stand-up comedian with uh, Tom. Tom, you tell one story that I read on your website. I wonder if you could share it with us for a minute. In those later years, you know, as we all do, as you get a little older, he had a rough time one time, and he actually forgot the words, and it was really poignant. You said he got his support from the crowd and got past it. Could you kind of share that? He he was 78 years old, and and, uh, we were touring all over the country doing one-nighters, and he uh, actually would freak lyrics once in a while. He'd just skip a lyric or something. And one night, uh, we were at the Mark Auditorium in the Quad Cities in in Illinois. It's... um, uh, Bentoncourt, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa, um, Moline, Illinois, and uh, the, the, the four quad cities up there in the Mark Auditorium. And it was a great show. The, the audience was great. I came off stage, Frank went on, and he was doing great. He did three songs in a row and was knocking them dead. He got to the fourth song, and he totally blanked on the lyrics. Now, he was on stage, and the orchestra was in the pit down below, and they didn't realize that he had skipped the lyrics. And now he was standing there, and they were playing, and he was whispering into the microphone, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm just so sorry. And the orchestra, realizing that he wasn't with them, start winding their instruments down one at a time to pretty soon this eerie silence in this huge 15,000-seat arena. And now he's, you can hear him whispering, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and, and I thought, oh, my God, this is it. We're going home. This is it. This is, this is the end of the career. And I started working my way stage left that I was going to say to him, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> it's time to go home, Mr. S. You know, it's been a great career, but it's time to go home. And uh, in the real silence of the, of the arena, a guy way up on top of the arena stood up and he hollered as loud as he could, that's all right, Frank. That's all right. We love you, Frank. It's okay. And he started to applaud. And people around him started to applaud. And then pretty soon, everybody in that section was applauding, and then they started going throughout the arena. All throughout the arena, they applauded until finally everyone in the arena was just cheering and applauding. And he turned, and I thought he was going to walk off the stage, and it was over. He turned, and you could see he had a tear in his eye, and he walked a couple steps, and he turned around and went back to center stage, and they would not stop applauding. And finally, they stopped. And he went into the next number, which was Mac the Knife, and he absolutely drilled that song. He hit every nuance, every lyric, like he was a 19-year-old kid again. 
And when he finished that song, <clears throat> the people in the arena stood and would not stop cheering for almost 10 minutes. It was, it was, it, it, it gave me chills, you know. What a great and, moment. And finally when they sat down, <clears throat> before he went into the next number, he pointed up to the guy up on top, and he said, I love you too, pal. And he sang for two years after that. That guy doesn't know it. That one fan brought him back from the ashes, you know, wow. to, to go on to sing for two more years after that. We'll return to the show in just a moment, but want to tell you about a way to spend some time in Las Vegas between Wednesday and Monday, 30 minutes at sunset. You're going to want to do this, okay? They've got a thing called Brilliant, and what it does, first of all, the Neon Museum is an incredible museum that has the story of Las Vegas told through neon, but this is an audiovisual immersion experience, 360 degrees where you can relive that time as it comes to life through these signs. It's hard to explain, but you got to see it. What you can do is go to the website, get a feel of what it's going to be. It's neonmuseum.org. And then you want to buy some tickets ahead of time because tickets go right away. You don't want to miss out. It's those 30 minutes right at sunset, Wednesday through Monday. This is the Neon Museum in Las Vegas, just north of downtown Las Vegas. It's a great stop. You want to see it, and this show is fantastic. So get a hold of the good folks of the Neon Museum. We are back talking with comedian Tom Dreesen. People need to know you are a great stand-up comedian, and I say that because, you know, I know people that are, like, my daughter's age have seen you, think you're great, old people think you're great, and everything in between, you know? So you've been able to do this, and you've done it clean, which nowadays for a comedian is tough to do. Is that something you just have, have always done and just decided that you were going to work uh, clean from the beginning? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you can be naughty but not dirty, you know, but, but I, you know, when I started out, wherever you went in America, Steve, in 1975, Wherever you went, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson? <laughs> if you ever been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one, or you might going to be one. But to America, you weren't a comedian until you've been on Johnny Carson. So as a businessman, you say, well, how do I get on Johnny Carson? You watch the show, and you realize you had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You know, there was no cable television in those days. So when cable television came along, you could work as filthy as you wanted to work, and you'd get a sitcom the next day. <laughs> yeah. But in, in our day, you, you had to work clean, you know. So I ended up, as you, I think, pointed out, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. So I had to keep coming up with new material and that kind of material. So I, I developed a wealth of that material, which actually helped me later on down the line because not only was I touring with Sammy Davis Jr. And, and working with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and people like that, you know, Mac Davis and Smokey Robinson. Well, you know, families were coming to see those artists, you know, yeah. and so they didn't want to be offended. So those artists, I, I got more work than a lot of other comedians. And then corporate America would hire me because they, you know, they didn't want their clients to uh, be uh, you know, insulted or, or offended you know, so it's been a, a, a lucrative career for a great, it's, you know, it's a great career for me working clean, you know. Well, yeah, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a return to that in the sense that people talk about your work, you know, of course, Jerry Seinfeld, even Jim Gaffigan. I, th I think there's a, a, a real want for that, because like you say, you can be naughty without being filthy. And, and uh, I'll tell you I, a funny story. Two comedians at the Laugh Factory, I was trying out new material uh, at the Laugh Factory here in L.A. in Hollywood. <clears throat> And uh, I was upstairs going over my notes, and the two comedians didn't know I was there, two young comedians. They were around the corner, 
and I heard them, they were talking about me. One of them said, you know, Tom Dreesen's here, and the other comedian said, oh, yeah, he's old school. And the other comedian said, old school, what do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. And the other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? <laughs> and I stuck my head around the corner, and I said, adjectives. That's <laughs> yeah. what I use for adjectives, you know. That, that's the problem. <clears throat> See, when you, a lot of young comedians say, say, well, if I swear and if I curse, that, then I'm pushing the envelope, you know. If you, 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 if you think using the F word is pushing the envelope, my grandmother says the F word, so you're not shocking anybody anymore, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, and also, you start relying on that as opposed to adjectives, and, and you become less creative. It's easy to write blue material. I could, look, I've done stag roast. I can do a stag roast with the best of them. You know, I'm a, I'm a street kid. I don't have a degree from academia, but I get a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets. You know, from the time I was eight years old, Shining shoes in bars, the setting pins in bowling alleys, caddying in the summertime. Uh, you know, uh, I worked in a pool room. I hung out in pool rooms. I, you know, I went in a service for four years. You know, I'm a street guy. You know, but there's a time for those kind of jokes, and there's a, you know, yeah. and again, you know, there is only one rule in comedy: be funny. That's the only rule. You know, I mean, I love Richard Pryor, and, and I love right. comics like that. You know, uh, but I chose to make a living in a different way. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up Pryor because I remember that. But wasn't part of it, too, because the stuff that Pryor was doing at the time and what have you, it was part of the, you know, that whole thing of the street and how he grew up and so forth. And now you get people that just, that's the way they do it. You know, every other word, like I say, is the F word or what have you. It's become too easy a crutch over time. Well, you know, <clears throat> Richard worked clean. People didn't realize, you know, he did like 60 Merv Griffin shows clean. He did, he had Sullivan shows clean before he, he went into the other area. By the way, <clears throat> he was he was a brilliant stand-up comedian, and and, and, uh, and I loved Richard. I, I knew him, and, and I liked him a lot. And we had a lot of great conversations together. But you, when you go, if you're going to go to work blue material, make sure that it's in proper content, you know, if you're using the word just for shock value, uh, after a while it loses its value. In comedy, any time you use, you use an adjective too many times, it will, uh, it will lose its effect. You know, the problem with the F word, it can be a noun, a pronoun, an adverb, an adjective. You know, you can, <laughs> it can, you can work it in anywhere, so you become pretty reliant on it and get pretty lazy with it. You know? That's true. You know, and that's why one of the things that people might not realize, you know, you're all over the country, you're working all the time. You also do these corporate gigs, and that's a whole nother world. And I know, you know, I, I was reading some of the reviews from you, stuff. they love this sort of thing. You enjoy doing that? Because I know, you know, to do those type of things, you kind of have to understand the group you're talking to, and, and you, you, you kind of have to... Uh, not only play a queen, but uh, you've got people that are doing a bunch of other things. You got to make them forget that for an hour or two. Well, here's the thing: <clears throat> they once asked Willie Sutton, "Why do you rob banks?" He said, "Because that's where the money is." You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, why do you do corporate dates? That's where the money is. <clears throat> you can make more money for one corporate date than you can for working three for working for a month in a comedy club somewhere. You know, and 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 it's also you don't have to worry about the draw. You know. If, if AT&T or IBM or American Airlines wants to hire me for their, their annual awards dinner or whatever it is, the people are already there. I don't have to worry in my dressing room, uh, did we sell out tonight or how many empty seats are out there? You know, a corporate date, you walk on the stage, you do 45 minutes of wholesome, good material, you walk up, they hand you a check, 
like I say, for more than you can make for a month in a, in a comedy club, you know, uh, or even a nightclub sometimes, you know. So that's where the money's at, and that's why it's, it's great to do that, you know. Well, let's tell people how they can get a hold of you, and they want to know where you're going to be appearing or anything like that. Where do we go on the web to find out more about uh, where Tom we can see Dreesen. Tom? Tom It's It's Tom, of course, T-O-M-D-R-E-E-S-E-N. Everybody spells my name wrong. They put an extra S in there, but there's only one S. D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com, TomDreesen.com, and it'll tell you where I'm going and how you can get a hold of me and contact me and Communicate with me and write letters to me and and, uh, and hire me if you like. Well, we I think that's a great idea. We'd love to have you out again sometime. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Anytime, Steve. Let me know. You've been listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. With new shows loaded twice weekly. Got a guest idea? Email us at info at VegasNeverSleeps.com and catch the show live every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network.